Hey friends, so I just wrapped up some summer camp trainings in the season that is summer camp training season. So I want to share some themes that I noticed that I think would be helpful for you if you're learning and also summer camps for the following year in preparation for the summer. Okay, so I've got five things written down. I'm going to take one at a time. That's the way I like to do it rather than all four of them at the same time. I don't even know how that would work. So the first thing that I found was incredibly important throughout this uh, training window was mentioning to the participants that were coming to the training that there was no expectation that by the end of the training they would feel 100% comfortable. As I say this, you probably do relate that when it comes to summer camp, there are certain areas of the camp that take get a lot of training attention and then that some that get pushed off to the side. So the big example is the waterfront. Lifeguards get a large amount of training. Now, partly that's because of the mandated amount that you need. And in our industry, we don't necessarily have that currently. That may happen in the future, but we currently don't have that where there's a mandate that says they need to have X number of hours of training before they become a certified challenge course facilitator versus becoming a lifeguard. The analogy that I often refer to is if you were to take a waterfront or a swimming pool and then you were to flip that upside down, drain the water out, hang some ropes from it. The overall risk in a waterfront scenario and a challenge course is pretty similar. Both of those things are somewhat equal when it comes to the level of risk. I would also argue that the challenge course and the ropes course has a lot of emotional and social risk tied to it that I think is important to train at. The comparison between the two should be relatively equal. So if you need five days of lifeguard training, then you should probably have five days of ropes course training. Now, some of this does depend on the size of the course. So going back to my um, original point here, the thing that I often tell the staff that I'm training is there's no expectation that you're 100% comfortable after the fact. But one thing I do really ask people to do and take mind of is utilizing time to practice. Now, in my mindset, practice does not make perfect. Practice makes progress. And the aim is for people to get a little bit more comfortable. So even in the training time, I would often say, we're going to spend the next hour practicing our knots. I might teach a new knot, but then the aim is just to keep practicing it. And what I'll often see is people tie it once correctly and then be chatting with their friends and not engaging with practice time. So I'll have to consistently remind people, please use this practice time wisely. It's not just about making sure you can tie the knots, but it's about comfortability. When do you go from that perception of practice to autonomy? When do you get to that mindset of, I know how to tie this now so comfortably that it doesn't cause me any stress? Sometimes to test this later on in the training, I'll throw a rope at someone and say, hey, uh, tie the Super 8. And then I'll just time it. Watch how long they take to tie that knot. Now, it may be that they're flustered, partly because of the pressure of you asking them to tie that knot quickly. 
But there should be a point at which it's so comfortable that you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be like, oh no, I tied that wrong, untie it, tie it again. I want people to get really good at feeling comfortable with their skills. Not just being able to tie the knot, not just being able to belay, but actually doing it enough times that they feel like they're comfortable. So that's a part that I try to ensure is happening in the training. I encourage it, and I will say this in front of the group, advocate for yourselves when it comes to your comfort. So if your director after this training is saying, well, Phil just trained you for X number of days, therefore you should be able to run this comfortably, I want to empower my people that I'm training to be able to advocate to say, no, they're not 100% comfortable and they need more time. Because it's those moments when we're uncomfortable, when we're feeling pressure from a supervisor, that we're more likely to embark in something risky and then potentially hurt one of our participants. So please, please, please advocate for your practice time. That doesn't just happen in the training, it happens outside of the training. And I encourage people to do in-services. So spending some time with the core group of people who are going to be running your course, go up to your course and just belay again. Practice some of these skills together and make it a collaborative experience, but practice, practice, practice. The next one is about belay technique. This is something that I found across the board I have to remind people the most about, and I do think it's a critically important section. Now, we focus really strongly on the P-bus method of belaying, and we focus very much on those sections, the pull, the break, the under, and the slide. What I think that we should continue to encourage each other to be more aware of is our belay stance. I'll have people come to level two trainings, and I have to remind them of that then as well, which means that for years, they have probably been belaying in a poor belay stance. Now, it's not just about feet, but it's about back. It's about the body shape. It's about twisting. It's about bending. Just like the first aid rule of protecting yourself, not running onto the scene, we should be protecting ourselves as belayers. I myself suffer from lower back concerns. I have deteriorated lower lumbar discs. So I have to be really cautious about my body shape and my stance when I'm belaying. I don't want to get pulled. I don't want to get dragged off my feet. I don't want to be twisting my body unnaturally. Try to visualize a window frame or a picture frame in front of you where the top of the frame is about eye level and the bottom of the frame is about your waist. Everything that happens with your hands should somewhat be happening inside that window frame. And that means that you should avoid having to take too much rope and having to bend down to do the sliding part of the action. It also means that you shouldn't be twisting to the left and the right. Now, if you're a right-handed belayer, traditionally, if you go back to the hands-up style of belaying, a right-handed twisting action was pretty common. That translation from that technique to the P-bus maintained the idea that people were pulling it off to the right-hand side. And the notion is that if I pull the rope to the right-hand side, it increases the amount of friction on the belay device, so I have a greater control. Now, with most belay devices, you just pulling your hands directly down in front of you will have a large amount of friction and will serve all you need in terms of the amount of friction in the device. Now, when you're pulling your brake strand to the side, what you're doing with your hips, if you think about your body shape, is you're twisting your hips. If you do that enough, 
then eventually you could get some repetitive strain in your back and in your hips. When it comes to feet position, standing in an athletic stance is the best position to stand in because if someone was to fall, then you would get dragged potentially, even if you have an anchor. That brings up a whole nother point, which I might, you know what, I'm going to mention it now. If you ask for an anchor when you come to lower, then you needed the anchor for the whole time. So often do I see people say, oh, I'm about to lower someone heavy. Hey, do you mind holding the back of my harness? What happened if they had fallen randomly? So if you are in a poor stance position, you could get dragged forwards. Now, as soon as you get dragged forwards, then that's going to be pulling strain on you. It's also going to mean that you lose some control of the, the belay. So to summarize, make sure you're in an appropriate upright position, you're operating within that picture frame, and that your stance is that of an athletic stance, one foot front of the other, slightly bent knees. Be prepared. Preparation is really important, and stance is a critical component of that preparation. This leads me on to my other point, and this is something that I saw come up a lot, and I continuously see this appear whenever I'm doing trainings, but I just want to highlight this. You don't have to be a really big belayer to be able to belay someone bigger than you. It gives you a lot of discomfort, and I understand it, because I am a lightweight person. I don't weigh much, and I belay mainly adults, because that's who I'm training, And so I understand the need for some alterations, adaptations to some of my style and what I do because I will be belaying some heavier people. But I see a lot of people hesitant to want to belay a heavier participant because they don't think they would be able to do it. And I want to just put it out there that absolutely, if you are lighter, you can belay someone heavier than you. Because if that wasn't the case, then I certainly wouldn't be able to do the job that I do. Here are a couple of points, uh, tips that can help you if you are a lighter belayer and you are belaying someone heavier than you. The first is think about your angles. If you constantly take steps back as the person is climbing and up on the elements in order to get a better angle to be able to see them, which makes sense, you don't want to be like looking straight upwards all the time and hurting your back and your neck. But when you're further away from the climber, what happens is the angle that you have between the rope going from them all the way up to the gear and then back down to you is bigger. And when that angle is bigger, there's less friction up top on the shear reduction device, the SRD, or whatever is being used up top. Because what's happening is your rope is pulling further away, the anger is is greater, and so there's less rope interacting. And that means you have less control. So as a lighter belayer, it's a good thing to know that so that you don't end up taking too many steps back, and that if necessary, you take some steps forwards to increase the amount of friction in the device up top. The second is to consider getting your body down lower. So when I notice that someone's about to slip off an element, if I'm paying attention, or when it comes to the lower in part, I'll often just drop myself straight down to a knee. Now, if I'm standing and I'm going to get lifted, lifting higher than standing means your feet are off the ground. If you're in a kneeling position, even if you were to get lifted, all that's going to happen is you're going to go from the knee to the feet when you go up which still gives you some control. So you have a period of time from the knee to the foot where you are still in contact with the ground and have a little bit more control. So both the combination of angles and lowering your own body can help you control someone who is heavier than yourself. 
This is an important piece, though. When it comes to the lower, I see this happen often. When you're lowering a participant, keep your hands, both hands on the brake strand, pulling downwards until the person has fully weighted the system. Because if you start to lower as they lower, you as soon as they take their full weight, you will get caught unaware of their weight, and then you could get lifted. So what it allows you to do is get a good stance, have good control of the rope, wait until they're fully weighting the system, and then you'll know how much weight is there. You'll know what to do about your body before you start lowering. Because holding them and not having them move, you have a little bit more control of the weight. As soon as you start to lower them and rope passes through the belay device, then you start to get lifted more. Have that control beforehand and then start the lowering process. Another thing I would recommend is instead of releasing the squeeze of your hands when you're lowering, keep one hand locked in place and just feed the, the rope through that hand by pulling up on it. This will give you more control, especially if you're having to belay someone who is heavier than you. Releasing the squeeze, having their weight pull the rope through your hands will burn your hands up really, really fast. And it's very hard to gain control back at that stage. Lots of different points there that can help you if you are a lighter belayer. Something that I bring up often in our episodes is the notion that you don't need to know a hundred activities sort of okay. You should try to get really good at about 10 or so activities that you could use in different ways with different audiences. And so with that said, I'm going to be talking about the book that I co-authored called Tinker. Building Purposeful Experiences from Classic Adventure Activities. Now, Tinker is like no other book of activities that is out there. This one focuses on the variations on these classic activities. So we picked a handful of activities. We went through the variations. We talk about how we frame and reflect on those activities and adapt them to meet the needs of any group that we work with. So in the description of this episode, I'm going to throw the link of where you can purchase the book Tinker. Once again, if you want to reach out to me, you can do so at Vertical Playpen. You can send me a direct message. That's on Instagram. Or you can email me, podcast at highfiveadventure.org, and I'll answer any questions you may have about this book. I'm very proud of it, so I hope you uh, pick it up and read it, and you find value in it as well. Okay, back to the episode. So this one is that prior knowledge isn't always a good thing. Standard operating procedures, which are SOPs, local operating procedures, which are LOPs, and individual instructor preference, IIP. Now, I I have had several trainings this year where I've had what I would refer to as backseat trainers. That essentially means someone who's had a lot of previous experience at that site, when I come in as an outside trainer and I'm trying to give my perspective on what we should be doing in this on this element or what the standard should be here, and I'm giving the specific standards, often you I'll find that someone who has had previous experience will then add their input and say, well, that's not how I would do it. I would do it this way. This is how I have been doing it. I have nothing against the way that they run it, but I want them to be aware of this notion of standards, local operating procedures, and individual instructor preference. Now, as a trainer, 
An area that I want to be teaching in is standard operating procedure. When I go to a site, I'll also look at their local operating procedures and see if there is correct alignment. And if there is, then I will teach to those local operating procedures. However, one area that I'm really hesitant to teach to, I make clear in trainings, that I'm not going to be teaching to my own individual instructor preference. And if I do, I will highlight that and mention that. That's, and I'll say, this is my individual instructor preference, but this is not necessarily how you have to do it. The issue when you teach from a mindset of an individual instructor preference is that you don't allow for other people to have a blanket, especially if they're new, awareness of the industry. What they will start to do is they will confuse your individual instructor preference for standard. So I compete against, so I combat against this quite often at trainings where someone will say, this is how I've done it and assume that that's the standard. And therefore, they then teach other people this quote-unquote, and I'm doing air quotes, standard. And then there's a lot of unteaching that has to come into play. And a lot of um, embarrassment sometimes when I reveal like, no, that's, that's not a standard. That's completely whatever your choice is at this moment. An example would be helmets. Some sites I've, I go to, their local operating procedure is that everyone on site wears a helmet participants, belayers, and anyone standing around the grounds. My personal opinion is that's a little over-redundant. Over However, that's their local operating procedure. But the issue comes in when they believe that that is the standard in the industry. So that's, I think, a benefit as well of having outside professionals come in and teach. Because we can give that standard overview, umbrella view of the industry, and then allow individuals to make some choices as long as within those knowing that they have a little bit more choice and they don't get confused with the notion that that's the way they have to do it this is also how misinformation gets often shared i was at a training where people were belaying using the waterfall belay technique both hands pulling up through the rope and they were calling that the p-bus and they were shocked to find out that that wasn't actually the the P-Bus technique, but yet a modified version of it that had been taught by somebody else as the standard. This is where we end up getting the game of telephone happening. So I just put caution out there that prior knowledge isn't always a good thing. The other thing I would just add in this, which I think lines up with it, is the notion of, I get this a lot from summer camp directors who say, Phil, you'll have a great group because I've hired a bunch of rock climbers. And my heart sinks a little bit and I have red flags. And it's partly because of what I just talked about. Their prior knowledge isn't actually up to standard. And often techniques are sloppy and have to do a lot of unlearning. And their confidence is high and their competence is low. And that is a very challenging person to be able to train. Unless they're willing to learn. Very often I have people who are like, oh, thank you for telling me. But sometimes I'll have people say, well, I've been doing this 15 years. No one's corrected me. I must have been doing it right. We shouldn't get to a point where our own individual arrogance or our ability overrides our ability to want to learn and grow in this field. The last one is quite a large one for me, so much so I recorded a whole other episode about it and it will come out soon and that will be about neat gear storage. When I go to a training, and this happened pretty much every single site I went to, so I'm not calling anyone out, you're all as bad as each other when it comes to this. 
But this is, I think, summer camp folks will know, this is class summer camp classic. At the end of the season, at the end of the summer, everything gets stored away for the all the months that you don't operate with summer camp. And then you open up the camp. Finding the gear is a big challenge. And it, it's a bit of a pet peeve for me when I'm going to a site and people don't know where their gear is. I have spent so many hours of time at trainings organizing people's gear it's something that your staff could do prior to me arriving and try to organize some of that gear and then maybe i can correct it but if we're pulling all the gear out of a a basement out of um, long-term storage areas and it's not organized because the previous people had no idea of how we're organizing in the first place then it will make things very challenging organization of your gear really will help the training process will also make the program look far more professional especially to your new hires who are coming in and as an outside trainer going into a site if i've not been to your site before i don't know where it goes either so please know where your gear is it really helps out a bunch the last thing i'm going to end this one on is a really positive thing for me every single training i did this summer and this is i think the power of training and why i think training is important I saw two major outcomes consistent through every single training. The one was that the overall confidence in the participants that I trained massively improved to the point where asking them on the first day how they felt they were really nervous to the last day, I could just point at an element and they would set it up. That's the power and the benefit of training and giving time for training. And all the trainings I did this year were three days or longer. So those things, that's great, depending on the size of your course. So giving time for their practice, that's so, so important. And it it means a lot to me when I see that confidence. That, for me, shows that the training has been successful. The other thing that is always, always a side benefit of the training is the team development of that core group of people that I teach. Because we stay together for three days or more, three, four, five days, and we end up bonding as a group. And that group becomes a really solid team and there's so much benefit to that as well because they see the benefit of the work that they're about to facilitate because it happened to them. They can draw on the emotions that they feel in feeling empowered because they had that during the training. So those things are so beneficial. Giving of time to the training allows them to bond as a team and so they have team development built into a training model. And that's something we uh, hold very strongly in our training models is I'm not just teaching skill. I'm teaching you to be a really good collaborative core group of human beings and talk about our emotions, talk about all of these different things or struggles and help you actually create a program where you feel supportive as a group. There's my wrap up of the summer trainings this season. It's been a long season. Thankfully, it wasn't a particularly wet season, so we were able to stay out for most of the time. And I wish all of summer camps running at the moment the best of luck and hope they have an awesome, awesome summer. Stay safe. Stay connected out there. If you want to connect with me, you can always reach out, direct message me at Instagram, at Instagram, (laughs) on Instagram, at Vertical Playpen. That's how you find me. And you can also email podcast at highfiveadventure.org and then you will be put in contact with me. Thanks, friends. Bye. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try.
Thanks for giving. I think I found the guy. <laughs>